Well, good morning. My name is Brian. I'm the associate pastor. Um, I just wanted to kind of set the stage for our service this morning and give you a little bit of a heads up in terms of where we're headed and how the service is going to be structured because it's going to have a bit of a different flow to it than it normally does. Most of you know the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and they're fascinating books, absolutely stunning, primarily because they reveal Jesus to us, to us, who he is, what he said, what he did. But secondarily, they're fascinating because of, of how we see people responding to Jesus, those who were with him. And as Stan and Neil have mentioned over the last few weeks, as people who saw him and heard him, they were astonished. They were amazed. Now, very often, we don't have that same response when we read these stories about Jesus. We live 2,000 years later. It's a different culture. We're not there live and in person, so it doesn't have the same impact. But I am convinced that the Gospels are written so that we can enter into wonder. And this morning, we're going to be taking a look at a text that's found in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. And it's going to be read, I'm not going to read it right now, and it's going to be read in sections. Really, the story kind of breaks down into three parts. So what's going to happen is three different people are going to come up intermittently and read different sections. Two purposes for that. One is this is such a powerful story. I kind of hope we marinate in this. And we hear the story and the segments as it plays out. Scripture this morning, the first segment is Luke 7, 36 to 39. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. May the Lord give understanding of his word. Luke 7, 40 to 43. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. The word of the Lord. I'll be continuing on in the passage of Luke 7, verses 44 to 50. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who are reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's turn our attention to Luke 7 and the story that was read. Potentially a very understated story, but a story with such power in it. Starts in verse 36 with Jesus getting invited to a dinner party at the home of a Pharisee. We learn a little bit later in verse 40 the name of the Pharisee. His name is Simon. Now, we don't know what motivated Simon to invite Jesus to this particular party. Could have been curiosity, and maybe he wanted to interact. As we're going to see as we work our way through this, it, it certainly looks like Simon is not a fan of Jesus. It seems like his intent in inviting Jesus was more hostile to mock or to malign. But a key part of the story is the fact that Simon is a Pharisee. So let's deal with one important question up front. What is a Pharisee? Simply put, a Pharisee was a Jewish uh, religious leader and teacher. They would teach in the synagogues. And these guys were very devout, very holy uh, by most people's standards. Now, the Pharisees as a group started during what's called the intertestamental period, that period between the Old and New Testaments that three or four hundred year period. And during that three or four hundred year period, Israel was controlled by a lot of other kingdoms and nations, from the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And the Israelites hated that. In fact, for many, their greatest desire was that God would punish these Gentile nations and that he would rule and reign from Jerusalem again. And there were some who thought that they needed to help God, that God would only move in that direction if they became more obedient, holy, devout. So there was a group of people that developed called the Pharisees. And they are literally called the separate ones. And Stan mentioned this a few weeks ago when he was talking about the Pharisees. They were ultimately known for two things. One is an intense obedience to the law, including their tradition, how to understand it, how to flesh it out, and two, to be separate from that which is evil or sin. Now, there, there is something noble in, in some of that desire, right? But their standard really became, their standard of morality really became one of legalism and how it impacted how they, how they viewed God. God to them was one who, who responded uh, and rewarded acts of obedience, outward obedience, and he hated and he punished acts of disobedience. So Simon is a Pharisee, and he invites Jesus to dinner. And interestingly, Jesus accepts. Now the story really starts to get juicy in verse 37. Because there is a woman who shows up 
to this dinner party. Now, mind you, she does not come carrying an invitation to this dinner party. She doesn't meet the bouncer at the door and say, here's my gold-plated invitation. And we really don't know a lot about this woman. In fact, we don't even know her name. It's not recorded. The one thing that is recorded about this woman is her reputation. She is labeled in verse 37 as a sinner. Now that's a broad term. It could mean a number of things. Frequently, though, it's tied to a woman who's a prostitute. We don't know definitively, but it's very possible that she was also a prostitute. Whatever the specific nature of her sin, though, mind you, she is labeled as a sinner for good reason. She was. And everybody there in that house, at that dinner party, knew it which makes her a very unlikely candidate to be crashing the dinner party at the home of the local Pharisee. So let's deal with a couple more questions. First, how in the world would she even get access into this house? Well, in Middle Eastern homes and parties like this, even today in a lot of places, Non-invited guests are not necessarily kept out. They can come in. They can come in and they would sit on the floor around the edge of the room against the wall. And they would observe. At the end of the meal, the host, in this case Simon, would feed those who wandered in. And the host gets brownie points because he looks generous and the outcasts are fed. So, technically, she had the right to be there. Still, imagine the courage of this woman, clearly known by everybody there, to enter the house of the local Pharisee, undoubtedly occupied by other religious dignitaries, and be part of this dinner. It's quite astounding. It raises another question. Why? Why would she choose to enter that house at that point in time? And the answer really is probably quite obvious. It's quite simple. It's because Jesus was there. Now, what, we're, what we don't get is the backstory. Apparently, this woman, at a minimum, had heard something about Jesus. Maybe she had heard him directly. Suffice it to say that she was motivated to go there that day because her life had been changed in some way because of him. And because he was in the vicinity, this lady was not going to miss an opportunity to be there and express devotion and gratitude. So that's verse 37, and then in verse 38, this really gets uncomfortable. Because this woman stands behind Jesus' feet, 
and she wets his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with the hair on her, of her head. She kisses his feet and anoints them with perfume. Now, before we move on and, and kind of unpack some of this, I encourage you to slow down the scene and try to imagine what in the world that must have looked like. Imagine yourself sitting in that room invited by Simon and you're watching this woman do this. How might you respond? So again, all this takes place at Jesus' feet. She's weeping, wetting his feet with her tears. She brings perfume, which she uses to anoint his feet. She kisses his feet. How in the world would she even get access to his feet like that? I mean, if you think about a dinner party today, that's really awkward. Crawling under a table between chairs trying to get access to feet. Well, they didn't sit at tables like we do today. They had tables. In fact, it's called a triclinium table. It's a three-sided table, three-sided, so one side was open so the servants could get in and, and fill stuff up or bring more food. But as they ate, they would recline. And I can't remember on which side, maybe the left side, they would prop themselves up with their elbow, but their head would be towards the center where the table is and the food and the beverage, and their feet would be out towards the wall. Guess where this woman was sitting? So she had relatively easy access to Jesus' feet. But what's the significance of what she's doing? Why is it significant that she wets Jesus' feet with her tears? What's the significance about kissing his feet and the perfume? Remember that as Luke sets this up, this woman, unnamed, stands in contrast to Simon the Pharisee. These two are standing at opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, Simon, as the host, should have followed cultural protocol when he welcomed all his guests, Jesus included. And in that day, protocol would have included, at a minimum, these things. Jesus comes in, Simon greets him with a, a kiss of greeting on the cheek. Simon provides water so that he could wash his feet, wash the dust off his feet. Simon would provide some olive oil for his head. In reality, when Jesus entered Simon's house, Simon provided none of this, clearly indicating how he viewed Jesus. And this was a cultural slap on the face not to provide any of that for this guest. 
Now this woman is sitting in there watching all this play out. Now she is a sinner, but mind you, she knows what cultural hospitality is supposed to look at. She's looking around and seeing it, how Simon and the others are treating Jesus and her heart is broken. So this woman sees what's not provided and she says, how can I step into this? What can I provide? So she doesn't have a bowl of water, but she begins to wet his feet with her tears. She doesn't have a towel to dry his feet, so she uses her hair. Inappropriate, inaccessible to try to kiss, uh, give a kiss of greeting on the cheek. Feet are accessible. She had brought perfume, uses that to anoint his feet as well. Now, before we move on in the story, again, try to imagine how that scene must have looked. Try to imagine how you might have responded had you seen all of this play out. And in verse 39, we see the reaction of Simon. Suffice it to say that Simon is absolutely mortified. He is scandalized. And he's scandalized by two things. One, he's scandalized by the behavior of this woman. Because she is doing things that are so incredibly countercultural at that time. These things don't appear so egregious to us in 21st century America, first century Jewish culture. This would have sucked the air out of the room. First of all, she, she loosens her hair, lets it down, and uses it to wipe Jesus' feet. But it's the letting the hair down that is so oh, shocking. The reason being that whenever a woman in that culture went out in public, her hair was to be up. Hair of a woman was considered sexually provocative. To walk out of a house with hair unbound was egregiously wrong. In fact, one of the reasons that a man could divorce his husband or his wife with no financial settlement was if she was to be out in public with hair unbound. So here you have this woman loosing her hair in a public room like that and using it to wipe Jesus' feet. Then she actually touches Jesus. Again, 21st century America, not such a big deal. First century Jewish culture, the genders would not even talk in public. Most rabbis, the religious dudes, 
They wouldn't even talk to their own wife in public. Now, I don't know, maybe the wives started that tradition. I don't know. But they wouldn't talk to their own wives in public. So if talking across gender lines in public is a naughty, can you imagine what it would be like to see actual touching and kissing of the feet? Everybody in that room would have been shocked and repulsed by her behavior. Everybody there would have thought, this is egregiously wrong. Everybody there would have also expected something else to happen. Everybody would have expected for Jesus to stop this to say something to her to put an end to this behavior. And I'm convinced that one word would have sufficed and she would have fled that room in shame. But to the shock of Simon and everybody else there, Jesus doesn't say a word to her. Jesus lets her actions, her gestures, continue. And by so doing, he is actually accepting her gestures. Now, Simon, again, I'm sure he cannot fathom what he sees, but Simon thinks to himself, he doesn't articulate this out loud to anybody, to Jesus. But he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Simon, again, is expecting Jesus to do something. And while, again, Simon doesn't say that out loud, Jesus knows what he's thinking. And in verse 40, <clears throat> Jesus turns his, his gaze, his attention to Simon, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, if Jesus ever speaks to you in that way, <clears throat> if he uses your name and then says, I have something to say to you, uh, it's probably time to start sweating a little bit. <clears throat> this is a classic Middle Eastern way of saying, I'm going to tell you something, and you may not be happy with the content. So remember, Simon brings Jesus probably to have a little fun with him, to mock him. But here the tables get turned, and Jesus addresses him directly. And then in verses 41 to 43, Jesus tells a parable and the parable is the crux of this story. This explains what this whole encounter is about and why Luke records it in the gospel. And in the parable, Jesus says there was a money lender who loaned two different amounts, 50 denarii and 500. Now, a denarius is a coin, and it was generally one day's wage. 
So if somebody was working for the day, they would earn a denarius. So in the parable, somebody owed him 50 days, the money lender, 50 days wages, someone 500. Both debts significant, but one 10 times the size of the other. And in the parable, Jesus says the money lender graciously forgave both. In this story, in this parable that Jesus gives, he asks a question that really is the key question. So which of them will love him more? And this is such an important link, such a fascinating link. See, Jesus is, is living out here, or Simon and this woman are living out responses to Jesus, responses to grace. And Jesus says that if somebody wants to love, they first need to understand how much they are forgiven. Lawrence Richards is a commentator, <clears throat> and he says this, the one who will not accept forgiveness will never learn to love. Such an important concept for us to understand. Grasping forgiveness is necessary to growing in our love for Jesus. And we see that played out in terms of how Simon explains this, how how Jesus explains this parable to Simon. Because clearly in the parable, the one with the greater debt is whom? It's the woman, right? And no debate about that. If Jesus would have asked, who has the greater debt? The woman, I'm sure, would be raising her hand. That's me. That's me. I I got the debt, and it's huge. And whether it's perceived, Simon's self-perception or not, Simon would have been the one with the lesser debt, at least in his own head. See, as Simon's in that room, what he is looking at is this woman, and all he can see is the greatness of her sin. And he's thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm good. But the woman recognized her sin, and that Jesus is the one who forgives, and as a result, her love was so evident by virtue of what she did. Simon, though, The religious guy, the devout guy, the obedient to Torah guy, he's thinking, no, I got this, I'm good, and there is little in the way of love. So Luke records this story as as a way, as a contrast of responses to grace and forgiveness. So as we begin to land the plane this morning, let's deal with the the last question. So what? Why is this story important to us? Because at some level, it could just be written off, well, that's an ancient story about Jesus, some dude named Simon, and some gal who was a sinner. I want to suggest that it's actually about us as well, like any Bible story is. When the Bible includes a story, it's not just for entertainment's sake or for interest's sake. It's so that we can find ourselves in that story. 
where are we in relation to Simon? Where are we in relation to this woman? What's my response to the grace of Jesus? And I admit, for a long time, I was puzzled by the fact that so many of the Gospels include so many stories about these dudes known as the Pharisees. And what I didn't get was the fact that, well, that was great, but that was back then. We don't have Pharisees anymore, so why are there so many stories about them included? I mean, I have yet to meet one person who pulls their wallet out, pulls out a card, and says, yeah, here, I'm a member of the local Pharisee club. We meet every Wednesday morning at 7 o'clock, and uh, we have a good time together fellowshipping as Pharisees. I have never met somebody who identifies in that way. But here's what I want to suggest, is that even though we do not have card-carrying members of the local Pharisee club, that Pharisaism is alive and well. The mindset, the attitude that were embedded in the Pharisees continues to live. And the reason that there are so many stories about the Pharisees is because Jesus knew that this would be a problem for all of history. Somebody has said that Pharisaism is the challenge of the human heart for all ages. See, Pharisaism spans cultures. It spans generations. It spans history. And this mindset is in many ways the greatest threat to the human heart. So when we read about the Pharisees in the Bible, it's because God knew that the church would need to be instructed on this. And that includes you and me. Now, what are some markers of Pharisaism? Probably a lot could be said on this, just to mention a couple things quickly. A couple indicators of Pharisaism. One is a focus on externals. These guys primarily judged outward behavior. It was what was seen and heard that was most important, the observable, the appearance. They often made things very black and white. They loved their structure. They loved their systems. They loved their isms. Reducing things to manageable behavior. There was also a strong desire to earn reward. And the Pharisees thought that their behavior merited favor with God. That God would look at their behavior and and say, oh, yeah, I am now indebted to give them something in response. And the Pharisees would often separate themselves from others. And perhaps the classic prayer of a Pharisee is found in, in Luke 18, where there are two people praying. One is a tax collector scum of the earth kind of guy in the eyes of the Pharisees. But the prayer of the Pharisee was, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I'm not like that. Ooh, thank you, God. I am so much better. And notice, by the way, God, what I do. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Again, pointing to self. In a sense, self-salvation. Timothy Keller, pastor, author, says this, the default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God and others through our moral performance. If I do this, God is obligated to give me something back. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. See, in the story, Simon fixated on that woman and said, well, she's the one with sin, not me. And don't think that that was limited to first century. How often do you hear from people, I'm not that bad. I'm actually a good person. I hear that all the time. But it's grading on a curve. It's redefining the standards so that they're easier to hit. But in order to apprehend the magnitude of Jesus' love and grace, we need to have a growing understanding of how great is our sin. And that's more than the observable behavior. It's going to the level of the heart. See, this story is given so that we can ask ourselves the question with God's help, God, where do I reflect Simon versus where do I reflect this woman? Several years ago, we were still living in Czech Republic. And I spent some time reflecting, meditating on this, this particular story. And I spent some time trying, like I said earlier, to imagine myself in Simon's place as the host of the dinner party. And how would I have responded to seeing this uninvited woman come in and behave as she did? I gotta tell you, I did not like how much I actually related to Simon in a lot of ways. And if there was one thing you don't want to have your attitudes align with the villain in a biblical story. (laughs) But I found a lot in my heart that rose to the surface that said, yeah, I would judge her probably in very similar ways that Simon would. Disgusted. Absolutely disgusted. Feeling embarrassed for my invited guests. But that's what a story like this does. In what way do we have those attitudes of Simon embedded in our hearts because we are still inclined towards Pharisaism at times? We are not excluded from that. And I want to suggest application, or it's not really application, it's just things to think about. A couple things to think about as we finish up here on this. 
One is, how do we perceive others? I mean, reality is we know that we're going to encounter people who are sinners. At times, we will encounter people who will make us profoundly uncomfortable by virtue of their actions or their attitudes, their perspective. Maybe it's because of their sexual lifestyle, political views, the way they raise their children, uh, issues with drugs, alcohol, whatever. What's our response to people like that? Do we see them as potential recipients of God's grace, or do we see them as somehow beyond the grace of Jesus? A little over a year ago, I I met a young man who was homeless and addicted at the time. And I remember the day that I met him. I was walking into Dunkin' Donuts, and he asked me if, if I could buy him something. And my first response, in all honesty, was, would you just please go away? I'm tired and I have so much to get done. But we we went inside and I ordered him something. And I told him, well, you know, I'm going to be working over here. uh, So if you want to just come and sit and hang out with me, you're more than welcome to. And as I was saying it, I was like, stop that. (laughs) Don't do that. And I had chosen to go there because a little while later I had a dinner meeting with a few guys at a place right across the street. So this guy is sitting next to me and for whatever reason I tell him, hey, over here at 6 o'clock I'm meeting a few guys from church. If you want to join us for dinner, you're more than welcome to. And at the same time again I'm thinking, Brian, stop! And we've developed a relationship and it's been really up and down. It's been really rocky. But he is a recipient of God's grace. And can we see people like that? That Jesus' grace is way greater than any sin that people bring with them. And then lastly, I want to suggest that this story is very significant for second-generation Christians. It's probably significant for us all. We need to be growing in our recognition of how, how much there is in our hearts that just doesn't align with God. But for those who grow up in a Christian home, I want to suggest that this is a profoundly significant text. Because very often, and I'm one of those, my parents came to Christ when I was a baby. So I grew up in a Christian home, really didn't come to faith until later. Uh, But I could see where there was a tendency to say, well, I'm just going to take care of this by virtue of my law keeping. I'll be good enough. I'm not as bad as those people. I've never done anything that bad. And see, there is, when there is not a desperate recognition of our sin, there's not a desperate striving after Jesus as Savior. So parents, I want to encourage you to do something that may sound strange. I want to encourage you to pray for your children to recognize their sinfulness to recognize the depravity of their hearts. Because believe me, it's there. See, this woman that came to Jesus, oh, did she recognize her sin? But oh, did she treasure forgiveness? Forgiveness for her was life. 
Simon looked at it and said, I am totally good. I do not need what you have, Jesus. I am self-sufficient. I've got this. And see, the central theme, one, one theologian I was reading said, the central theme of the, of the entire New Testament is forgiveness. Transmitted because of Jesus by the Spirit. And we know that in our heads. We would all pass a test on that. We'd get that question right on the test. But how much is that reality that Jesus forgives sin transformed my heart and your heart? Do we grasp it? That we were dead, now we're alive? That we have been freed from this penalty and this power to live a new life? Again, notice how Jesus concludes this when he's speaking to Simon, verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. <clears throat> Reality is we have sin in our lives is far greater than we would ever begin to imagine. But God's grace is greater still. Do we recognize both of those? Let me suggest that we make it a prayer to be growing in recognition of just how much we need Jesus as Savior and how great is his forgiveness. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Jesus, we are grateful for your love, your sacrifice, for the life that you invite us to. Lord, I pray that you would be revealing to us as a church, as individuals, just how desperately we need you. May we treasure you more because of that. May we more and more reflect the attitude of this woman to be passionate because we recognize that you are the one who frees and saves and gives life. So, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Surrendering. That's what it's about. And on one hand, it's so easy. On the other hand, it feels like letting go. It feels so hard. I want to suggest again that Jesus offers fullness of life. And perhaps there's a struggle, a sin, something that you've been wrestling with encourage you to, to recognize that and run to the Savior. He does forgive. I was reading a book again, and uh, he was talking about the cross, and he referenced Carl Menninger, who was a famous, apparently a famous psychologist, and he said if he could convince the patients of his psychiatric hospitals that their sins are forgiven, 75% of them would walk out the next day. Above anything else, we need to recognize that sin is our greatest problem. Not politics or economics, but sin. And Jesus is there to forgive and to give freedom in life.